you have found your way to the 41st episode of Rank and Review, and our returning guest, Lee Beckman, and I are going to discuss John Carpenter, six celebrated and not-so-celebrated genre movies from John Carpenter. The music you're hearing behind me, coincidentally, is not the typical collaborator who uh, does the music for my show, El Heavy. No, no, no. This time around, we're actually playing some John Carpenter for you, because the man at the ripe old age of whatever he is now is still continuing to produce music, and uh, he hasn't directed in a while, but he's still out there. So uh, hopefully I don't get sued for this brief unsolicited plug for John Carpenter. As usual, you can expect spoilers for the movies discussed, and as usual, you can probably expect some coarse language. My name's Larry Parsons, I'm your host and random Canadian. Please do seek us out on Facebook, seek us out on iTunes, and tell your friends about Rank and Review. We have a website, rankandreview.ca, and uh, I would really love to hear from you at uh, Rank and Review, R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W, at gmail.com. Enjoy the show. So Mr. Lee Beckman is back in my filthy garage. He returns, and uh, once again we're doing kind of a special episode together. Um, we're going to look at probably one of our, it's one of my preferred genre directors, and would you say Carpenter is your favorite director period, or is it just... If you had to put a gun to my head, I would probably say John Carpenter. Yeah. John Carpenter, when I first started taking movies seriously and as more than just entertainment, but as an art form. He was one of those first filmmakers to really sort of open the flood, floodgates about technique and what it took to be a good filmmaker. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that might be what's interesting or about one of the many things that's interesting about Carpenter is that he does make sort of popcorn entertainments, but he is a very proficient professional filmmaker. He makes them well. It's not a group of slapdash young folks who are trying to figure out how to make a film. This is a guy who knows how to make films, and yep. he chooses to make movies yep. like They Live, yeah. and, and, and Memoirs of an Invisible Man, and etc. Like He's very much a genre filmmaker, yep. but you get the feeling like he had it in him to be an Oscar director if he wanted to, if he chose that path. What makes me love him is that he chose this path. Yeah, he no. chose to stay in sort of almost specifically horror, sci-fi genre filmmaking. Um, there's an interesting quote by his first wife, Adrienne Barbeau. I hope I think I, I'm pretty sure I said her name correctly. <laughs> I hope I did. Anyways, that she said one of the things that she loved about her husband that John was you know one of the most uh, when when she was married to him one of the you know apolitical like he wanted to get out of any sort of politics uh, with his movies, you know to be taken as a serious artiste, if you will, and right. just wanted to make genre picture, pictures. So, and, and even if there's in interviews, he he's openly says, he, you know, while selling some of his movies, you know, it's basically Ice Cube kicking ass on Mars. He has no illusions that he's making, in some ways, these great, great works of art, if yeah. you will. And that's one of the things that I find very endearing about him. He's making entertainment, and he's making to his own tastes, yeah. for the most part. But his tastes are shared by many. Yep. That said, um, 
he doesn't hit it out of the park 100% no, no. of the time. In fact, even in the six that we're talking about, I mean, I, there, there are some problematic numbers in here, but yep. um, I think it's always worthwhile to check out the next John Carpenter movie. Here's right? the question I have for you, though. Mm-hmm. Do you think he deserved to be, to be mentioned in the same breath as other auteurs, filmmakers such as Albert Hitchcock, Francis Ford Coppola, uh, Brian De Palma, dare I even say The Beard, Spielbergo? <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't think his influence could be understated. I mean, um, I think the the modern equivalent we have, the closest thing, I'm not going to say he's there, but Robert Rodriguez is the guy who's sort of making those types of movies yeah. fairly consistently yeah. uh, these days. And he's got a little more, he's got more toys in his toy box than Carpenter usually has to play with. Um, but his track record is, I think, even more spotty yeah. <laughs> than, than Carpenter's. Yep. Uh, I will say this though they sure have remade a lot of his movies yeah and that also suggests something about the influence yeah you know? um, people who have seen the movies believe that they can sell them on a younger audience yeah and other filmmakers have, have aped Carpenter as well absolutely either like homage or flat out aped him so and uh, it's not that he has you know a bona fide classic in his resume he does he does it's he, not just that though yeah. he has I think several Mm. I would say he, Halloween and the Thing yeah. for sure. Yeah, one hundred percent. Put it in the books. Well, I mean, Halloween, Halloween is in film. Was it the film library, film congress, whatever you yeah, want to call it? Congress. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it is sort of the industry standard horror slasher movie. Yeah, I uh, like it. It is what is they are all compared to. Yeah. I did slasher cinema history, and I put yeah. Halloween at number one. Yeah, it is the the slasher movie as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and I think it will it will. Keep that title for a long time. Yeah, he also has a couple of cult classics, if he will. Absolutely, the, I would say we are we are reviewing one of them today, yeah. and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll two of them actually too. I would definitely say another one of these movies that we're going to talk today. I think would I would put personally in the classic canon. Yeah, um, but it's hard to to see it alongside names like Halloween and uh, the Thing. But in its own way, I think one of these six movies that we're going to do is is every bit. Uh, the masterpiece. Uh, should we mention the movies that we're going to talk about? He's got we a very. Should. We should. He's got we, a very long got... storied career, yeah. so uh, we're not going to do uh, all of them. We're going to do six. Yeah. <laughs> so. We're doing Baby Carpenter. <laughs> we are. This is. We have Carpenter's first. Uh, first movie ever. Yeah, we're going to start with 1974's originally student feature, Dark Star. Yep. Co-written by Dan O'Bannon and. Uh, they were so happy with it as a student film that they added an extra 15 minutes and released it theatrically. Yep. Um, and then his very first professional feature, which directly followed that, came out in 1976, the year of my birth. And mine. And, uh, yeah, so this was his first, you know, backed Hollywood, quote-unquote, yep. picture. Um, from there, Assault we're going to jump ahead. Assault on 13, yeah. From Assault on 13, we're going to jump ahead uh, past... The TV version of Elvis Presley biopic. Right. And we're going to skip over, you know, The Fog and Halloween. And we're going to jump to Escape from New York. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of the prototypical 80s post-apocalyptic thriller type of deal. I know it's not a genuine apocalypse that we've witnessed yeah. here. But it's got that vibe. The world has changed for the worse. And yeah. we have our heroes, our villains in this world. Yeah. <laughs> And then we're going to jump into, I do believe, is it his first studio picture? Well, Starman. I think after The Thing failed miserably, 
he wanted to have a few hits under his belt because, you know, he wanted to keep making movies. It's funny, Christine, the Stephen King movie that he did, we're not going to talk about it today, but yeah. uh, that wasn't necessarily a passion project of his. No, he didn't he, really he has... want to work with Stephen King that badly. It was like Stephen King was basically licensed to print money in yeah. the 80s. So if he can direct a Stephen King movie, then he's got a hit under his belt. Yeah. And I think that Starman, the movie that we are going to talk about, is a little bit in that category as well, is that it had money in it, and the concept was strong enough, and the people around it were strong enough. We'll, we'll it get, was going to we'll be get more. We'll get to more of that when we get to Starman. Absolutely. Yep. But, uh, so, but I think that Starman, in a way, it's one of his bigger hits, yep. but in a way it's one of the more atypical Carpenter movies. See, but again, see I... We'll, we'll talk about this we'll later because I'll disagree with you we'll on We'll scrap on it. Yeah. But uh, he followed it up with yeah. a much more, to my mind, typical John Carpenter beast. That being Big Trouble in Little China. Amen to that. <laughs> and we're going to wrap it up going deep all the way to, was it 1989, I want to say? Yes, it is. It's credited I as think it, I it was 89, but They Live. They Live, starring Roddy Piper and he in Keith need of a last David. name, Keith David. Yeah, we'll get to Keith David. <laughs> I, I have a new man crush. <laughs> so, again, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a grab bag of Carpenter that we're talking about here. And I think one of the more interesting things is, is for a podcast that seems quietly obsessed or not so quietly obsessed with horror movies. Yep. There's not really a genuine horror movie in the bunch here. No, no. These are all either sci-fi, action, well... They're genre movies, yeah. but I don't think they're necessarily designed to keep you up at night. No. They're designed to keep you eating popcorn and having a smile on your face. Yep. And I say amen to that. Alrighty. Hey, happy Friday the 13th, by the way. And happy Friday the 13th to you. Shall we get started? We shall. It is the future... Mankind has conquered the stars. He moves out to the endless interstellar reaches of the universe. An advanced exploration corps, a new breed of pioneer must seek out unstable planets and destroy them. Drive sequence begun. Hit it, pin back. So as I've talked about in the past on the podcast, the there was a period starting in the late 60s and going fairly deep into the 70s where it seems to me like any man could be a leading man. Yep. Mop hairs were no problem. Men could wear fur coats. There was no beard too bad, <laughs> you know? Yep. There's a lot of people nowadays who will try to grow a beard and then sort of, you know, shamefully with their tail between their legs, crawl away from it. Not so in the 70s. I'm looking at you, Orlando Blue. <laughs> <laughs> Not so in the 70s. Everybody, everybody looked like they were trying to be <laughs> fucking dwarves from Lord of the Rings, yeah. it seemed. Yeah, uh, So, too, uh, a young John Carpenter in his uh, I guess early 20s. We're probably, yeah, I'm looking at 21, 22, 23. He's going to film school, and he hooks himself up with a young Dan O'Bannon. Dan O'Bannon's future is both bright and cloudy at the same time. He will have the proud credit of Alien, Alien as and a screen also, credit, and he would go on to write and direct cult classic Return, Return of the Living, Living Dead. Dead. Yeah, no, we have to thank him for that. Yeah, um, he also got tied up with uh, Jurodowski's Dune. There was this big documentary released on it last year, um, yeah. and that he lost a year of his career to not making this Dune movie. He's an interesting conversation in and of himself. But yeah. going back to our focus of our conversation today, yeah, 
Carpenter shared writing credit on this fairly ambitious, no-budget science fiction movie with yeah. O'Bannon, but he directed it. This is his first feature-length baby. There's a few shorts to his credit on IMDb before this, but yeah. this is the first beast. Yeah. And what you're looking at here is sort of a weird hybrid drug-induced crossbreeding of A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Waiting for Godot. Yeah, no. I, well, well said, sir. But way worse than either of those titles would suggest. Yeah. Now, he also did some, like, you can tell there's some, like, Robert Highland and Ray Bradbury uh, in there. The ending, actually, is very much from a Ray Bradbury short story, which name currently escapes me. But regardless, when you're sitting down to Dark Star, you have to kind of realize this is a student film. So yeah. you have to be kind of gentle with it. At points, it is sort of tedious. It's also billed as a comedy... Which, I mean, I guess there are some funny elements to it. This but... sort of speaks to me of the angry young man thing. And I totally rode this pony when I was in my 20s, too. Yeah. Where uh, comedy was existential comedy. Darkness was yeah. comedy, right? Yeah. Uh, it was funny because we all share the same malaise and misery of existence. Yeah. The Chekhovian idea of comedy. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Um, uh, it's It's... I think something that appeals to young men before the weight of the world genuinely crushes their spirit. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, and I think that this is that too. I think you'll see the same sort of thing expressed in young playwrights who yeah. write these like fuck heavy plays that are all angry about ugly sexual issues. Just sort yeah. of doing something aggressive and negative. Yeah. In a way, this is an aggressive and negative movie, but yeah. it's also really ambitious considering the oh, no, can, that they had put to this. Definitely of its time, like the special effects and the fact that these are students. Yeah. This is a very ambitious project, so kudos for them for you know making this. Do you want to attempt the plot for us? I don't think we've really attempted it. All right. Well, basically, it's a crew out in space who, whose job is to sort of almost clean up the, the universe, like destroy planets by dropping yeah. these bombs. I'm not sure if they're clearing a path for something else or if they're just getting rid of errant anomalies that, yeah. are, that are out in space, but they go to obscure corners of space and blow shit up. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And they've been in space now for like two decades. Yeah. And they're starting to go crazy just from being around each other. In fact, some of them have started to die off, actually. Uh, So there's this whole study of isolation. Are they crazy? Is it not crazy? Are there enemy within, enemy without? Yeah. Um, That all sounds a lot more interesting than the movie actually is. Yeah. But that's what they were going for. And again, considering that this is no budget and it's set on a spacecraft in outer space and it's made by students with no money. Yeah. uh, You know, I applaud the ambition. Yeah. The pacing is very tedious and off. Mm. It's almost like there's kind of three little short stories with that follow almost three different characters throughout this movie. We've got of this one sort of subplot where one of the characters played by Dan O'Bannon has to go and, you know, feed this pet that they've picked up on a planet and it escapes and, you know, begins this sort of slapstick chase through an elevator shaft. Yeah, I was one often wondered if that actually happened or if that was all existing in that character's head. That was one of my flights of fancy about the movie itself. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there's also another story where these bombs that are, you know, have their own intel- intelligence. Sentient, intelligent bombs. Again, that yeah. seems right out of, like, A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, or yeah. more obviously, like, Hal from 2001. Yeah. No, that that idea is very, very interesting in, in its own self, but it's almost a different 
part of the movie and feels off from the rest of it. Yeah. Um, I guess what, you know, the third story, the, you know, the people themselves and, and how mad they've been driven, or I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, th- that's sort of the plot of Dark Star you know, in a nutshell. It's, it is a series of events. And again, in its defense, it was never really originally planned to be a, a feature-length movie seen by a lot of people. Yeah. We're basing our review now on the theatrical cut. Yes. So originally, I believe this was 66 minutes long. Yes, Something and they like expanded that. And to they about added like 15 minutes to get it to like... Shy of 80 minutes. Yeah. So, so they could release it theatrically. And, yeah. Um, as interesting as it is, and as the, the fact that there's obvious talent involved in yeah. it, I don't know that it, it was worthy of a theatrical release. Maybe in 1974 it was, but yeah. certainly by today's standard. You know what this movie reminds me of, actually? What? Way back... We in episode like nineteen, I think it was, we yeah. reviewed the Roost. Yes, by Tyra West. Yes, where, which were like you can see it's competently made yeah. considering the limitations of what they have. Yeah, no, I, I can that, see that's, the that's talent a really there. good reference. Yeah, you can see the talent there, but you're hard pressed to give it a, a, a pass. Well, that's the thing. That's like, exactly you ha- you have happens. to remember that this is a student. They they haven't. These are students that made this film. Yeah. That made this film. They they haven't quite figured out. Film pacing. They're still working on film language. Um, Carpenter, I don't think, and you know, his next film that we are that we're going to talk about also suffers from this. He hasn't really learned how to communicate well with the actors yet. The, the performances are very, in a lot of ways, stilted. Nobody in this movie goes on to anything of significance as far as the cast that I can yeah. recall here. Um, like obviously, Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon went on to to brighter things, but uh, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. This is handmade. Sometimes I find that sort of charming. And in a lot of especially micro-budget films, I will put up with a weak performance because yeah. I understand that, you know, you're making do. Try try making putting a movie together and asking people to commit and not yeah. pay them for that many hours. And then, you know, you're going to sack them because you don't think they're pulling their weight, you know? Well, at least, you know, in the theatrical cut, they're aping Star Wars at one point. Or is yeah. that just more for, yeah. Star Wars was brand spanking new. It yeah. was like, a, it still had new car smell on it when, when this one's coming up. And the influence was undoubtedly there. I'm sure yeah. that they were all very, they, they all, you know... Anyway, smoked some drugs. I'm gonna presume. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, you kind of get that impression. And mm-hmm. after they saw Star Wars, they all got together and they all started talking about what they'd been reading for school. And they cobbled up a short film, and it was supposed to be a short film. I think once you go about padding it out and stretching it out and trying to deck and sort of make it into a, a feature length, you're not making these decisions for art anymore. You're yeah. saying, how do we get this to 80 minutes instead of how's the best way to tell the story? Yeah. And the story was pretty vague to begin with. It was yeah. like a bunch of crazy people get a little bit crazier. Yeah. Is basically the arc of the story. <laughs> I do like that they spend time dwelling into how crazy these... They've got purely cabin fever. Yeah. And I do like that angle about it, and that could be its own movie. Yeah. Um, so that aspect I do enjoy about it. Um, I, I do enjoy the whole idea about the bombs having their own identity and personality, and yeah. but no, that's good. It just can't quite come together somehow. It's a bunch of ideas yeah. that maybe or maybe not are connected with each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and again, we'll just give it the benefit of the doubt. Like, from what I know about Dan O'Bannon, he is a bit of a wild child. Yeah. And I'm going to guess that Carpenter in his 20s was, you know, <laughs> 
probably, you know, experimenting a little bit. And, uh, you know, he could blow his own mind. How many screenplays has he written at this point, right? Uh, I don't know. Right? So, um, everybody starts somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, if I made Dark Star when I was 22, I would be darn proud of it. But I don't know that I would try and push it out on a mass audience. Mm, No, no. No, this is definitely for, you know, John Carpenter completists. or And if there's any out there, Dan O'Bannon completists as well. If you're into Dan O'Bannon, you're into John Carpenter for sure. And if you are bonkers shit crazy for sci-fi, if you'll watch anything with a spaceship in it, fine. But, you can see, yeah. you can definitely see elements that Dan O'Bannon used in Aliens, though. Like there is there is kind of that model of this sort of working class crew out there that have probably spent too much time together out in the darkness of space. So yeah. there's there's that as well. Anything else can say about Darkstar? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I've been mean to it, but... Uh... <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. Well, as we mentioned earlier, it's a student movie. You kind of yeah. have to... The fans can't be that sharp. Yeah. Um, the potential is there, and we'll yeah. see where he goes from. Freeze. On Saturday, six members of the gang known as Street Thunder were ambushed by the police. On Sunday, Cholo. the warlords of Street Thunder swore a blood oath to avenge their dead. For the gang called Street Thunder, it is a day of vengeance. It's war in the streets. Oh, Jesus, come on. Come on, I'll give you my money. Just don't hurt me, please. Please. It's terror in the night. It's the most shattering assault on a police station in history. Assault on Precinct 13. This is the siege. It's a goddamn siege. Okay, 1976. Two years have followed since he made his brash debut with the flawed but interesting Dark Star. Mm -hmm. And uh, now... All by his own self, John Carpenter is going to direct Assault on Precinct 13, also written by... I think I see obvious influences here. I I want to say this is sort of a Warriors sort of byproduct. Well, what what he did with it is... Carpenter you know, <coughs> also has openly admitted that you know he loves Westerns, and he's essentially taken Howard Hawks' as Rio Bravo yeah. and made it into this exploitation, gritty 70, er, 70s crime picture. But what I think is interesting to me about this movie, um, it, it is 1976, and it feels and looks like 1976. Yes. So expect that. Yeah. But I see him sort of very early, either accidentally or on purpose, developing his idea of suspense and tone and yeah. atmosphere. Yeah. Because this is an action movie, essentially. Mm-hmm. It is, like you said, it's Rio Bravo. It's an mm-hmm. urban Rio Bravo. Yeah. But I found it quite frightening. In oh. fact, I think it edges on terrifying. <laughs> at no, times. this movie has some sus- terrifying and suspenseful moments. We, I, I don't want to get too early in talking about the sequence with the ice truck and the girl, but yeah. there are some general moments of terror. One of the things that really works about this movie is that we really don't know much about the gangs. I, I mean, I think the motivation for what they do is getting revenge for the murder that we see at the beginning of the picture. Yeah. But they're almost like zombies in a way. They, they feel subhuman somehow. And yeah. they're, which they're, they're so willing to die for this cause. Yeah. Um, basically, you have um, some key gang members get blown away after... Uh, committing a horrible crime. Yeah. And the United Gang Front sort of decide that they're going to 
take revenge. Yeah. Coincidentally, an, uh, an officer that we met, played by Austin Stoker, mm. who I'm not really familiar with, who I think he's fairly strong in this, he is was sort a, of... Sort of a 70s t- TV actor that was big, little big for a while. Beyond, yeah. But beyond that, I don't know. He's uh, basically given a, what seems to be a quiet desk job at a sort of closing precinct yep. um, that gets a little bit exciting at first because they end up having a prison transfer stop by and then become sieged, as we say, yep. by these, whatever you want to call them. They, they go past gang, you're right. It's like some sort of crazy yeah. cult. <laughs> just, yeah. And they're endless waves of them. And it really doesn't make a lot of sense. Honestly, if you want to sit down and break down the real-world plot of this, I don't know what kind of dark future world that we would be in for this to really fly. But the movie is so suspenseful and it just keeps going and going that while you're in it, you don't have time to think about it or question it. You no, know? No. <laughs> so you take the ride with the movie. Yeah. Um, and uh, not unexpected archetypes are exploited. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the noble police officer who's going to do the right thing no matter how dark things get is going to be forced to team up with the incarcerated you know, villain, and yeah. together fight side by side against this bigger evil. Yeah. Um, nothing new is brought to the board here, no. but it's just how it is presented to us. Um, and I, I have to think, I don't know if I'm a real student of, like, 70 cinemas, mm-hmm. the way some people are, that the, lev- the way the gunplay is handled and sort of the frighteningness of it seem different to me than your typical, you know, action movie fare. The deaths had impact. Mm, mm, no, I, absolutely. I, I agree with that completely. I mean, I guess we can now talk about... <laughs> the instigating crime? Yeah, the, the one scene that uh, really kind of... It sets the bar pretty high at that point. <laughs> it, it's basically telling you that you know anything and you know almost something will happen. Everything is on the table. Yeah, we should probably you know set the scene, though. In the first quarter of the movie, uh, the gang decides to get revenge for the, the murders at the beginning, and they hunt and stalk basically this ice cream truck driver. This whole sequence leading up to the murder, and I'm spoilers for those who haven't seen this. Yes. It, it, honestly, if you don't know about this, you should stop now yeah. and go and watch the movie because it really is kind of. A, but um, there's a murder in this movie, which even as you, you you know it's coming or you've seen the movie. It's still brutal and shocking. A little girl wants ice cream. Yeah. And um, she's she get... brutally gunned down. Yeah. And her father doesn't directly witness it, but he is basically at ground zero for it. Yeah. He, you know, sends his little girl to get an ice cream. Yeah. And he turns around and she is dead. Yeah. And it's not one of those things where the gun goes off and we see a, you know, a shape laying on the ground. Yeah. That bullet hits her square in the chest. Yeah. And doesn't it explode her ice cream? <laughs> or like yeah, pretty much over her face yeah and it, it's shocking it is shocking and in the behind the scenes they carpenter talks about it is they they figured when they screened this for the ratings board there's no way they were going to let that fly yeah and his producer thought of a clever way around it yeah he told the ratings board he was going to cut it and then didn't and then he didn't yep here, fucking here. It's not that I have this bloodlust that I want to see little kids get gunned down, but yeah. uh, I think the impact of that moment was a important to the film. Yeah, and b I just don't like 
you know censorship in movies. No, it was it's a pretty it was a pretty bold move, and it was the right move. Yeah. Um, but that whole sequence leading up to that particular moment is so well done. Yeah. It's 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 almost Hitchcockian uh, in, in in how it's executed with that truck and. There's almost no sound. There's no music. That truck just, that car just keep, you know, keeps on going by, and the ice cream truck man knows there's something wrong. Yeah. And it just, it, it, the tension builds and builds and builds, and the payoff is brutal. Yeah. This is who we're dealing with. These are our villains. Yeah. Um, once we get into the precinct itself, the movie yeah. sort of gets locked into this one location, and uh, I think that was. Very helpful for budgetary reasons. Yeah. Um, but that's something that I would prepare people for. The scope of the movie kind of narrows into this sort of siege point. Yeah. And that's where you get It's the, almost a play. Yeah. You could almost be... You get to this sort of Night of the Living Dead almost sort of place. Yeah. Um, where all of the survivors, whether they want to or not, are forced to pick up arms and defend themselves. You yeah. Know, be them the secretary or be, the, you know, a police officer in that cage. And again, going to the deaths that are felt when the a supporting character who has been terrified this whole time is given a gun and is finally able to defend herself. We sort of get that rush, good for you, girl. But the stakes are high enough that just because she was precocious and had, you know, mad skills didn't give her a life pass for the movie. If she's in the wrong place, she's going to take a bullet. And such is how it plays out for her, you know. Yeah. And uh, everybody's on the table. And that is made clear with the death of the little girl. Nobody is safe. If they're going to gun down this little kid, what the fuck else is going to happen? Yep. No, um, one of the things I like about Assault, and Carpenter does this throughout his career, is he likes to use the same sort of actors. I'm going to give a, spe- a special nod out to uh, Frank Doubleday. And you go, Frank Doubleday? Who is that, in fact? <laughs> Who is Frank Doubleday, Lee? He was the actor that actually kills the girl. Um, right. he, he also shows up in Escape from New York, and he, he has this... I wouldn't say familiar face, but a face that you can't quite forget. It's, it's one of those faces. Ghastly, nasty looking. He, he had a bit of a career as, of course, a character actor, you know, just because of, of the way he looked. But he is pretty creepy both in this and Escape from New York. Yeah. He's quite good. Um, another, there are two other actors that Carpenter also uses more than once that show up in Halloween. Um, Charles Cyphers, do you remember him? He's the guy that brings out Napoleon. Okay, right. He, he's the sheriff. That shows up in Halloween. You feel like he'll be a bigger player than he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Also, Nancy Keys, who's actually cast as Nancy Loomis. Loomis, yes. Uh, she's also in Halloween. She's the one that I think gets strangled in the car. Right. Um, and not just the cast members you'll see again, just sort of his typical thing. He This is his screenplay. Yeah. And he loves antiheroes, right? So yeah. this is uh, uh, Napoleon Wilson. Yeah. It's his, sort of his first macho name. It's not quite Snake Plissken. Yeah. Napoleon. But it's somewhat badass. Played by an actor named Darwin Dawson. Yeah. Um, uh, very much in the wheelhouse of, uh, of what I, I like think Carpenter imagines himself to be. <laughs> you yeah. know? Uh, the guy badass, who, bucking the rules, doesn't give a fuck about anything, he, including he, what he happens. He has openly to. admitted that he hates uh, authority and is very much... Uh, um, suspicious of of any organized group whatsoever. He he definitely hates what is the, the establishment and absolutely. And we we get that here. We get that in uh, other movies that we're going to talk about. That theme is very much there. this. 
just sort of quietly disgusted with the entire artifice of authority around him. Yeah. But he is willing to recognize in, in the uh, Ethan character uh, that he's one of the good ones, as it were. It that is, actor has to choke some, choke down some pretty, pretty bad, bad lines. lines. It's yeah. true. But he sees that this, even though he's a cop yeah. and he's one of them, yeah. that he's staying and being noble and doing everything he can to keep people alive. Yeah. And he recognizes that and does not exploit it. So. Yeah. Carpenter always wants to have his cake and eat it too with his anti-heroes because they're supposed to be completely badass and non-caring yeah. and yet utterly noble. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's a tough balancing act and that's why I think when it's played a little bit more goofy, it works more. Yeah. Enter Kurt Russell. So, uh, <laughs> uh, in this movie, the stakes of it are so high that those lines actually do ring a little bit hollow. In a, way that, yeah, <laughs> in a way that they don't in, in future movies when he's, you know leaving a little bit more room for air in the proceedings, a little bit more lightness to this. Yeah. This is like a survival horror movie as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. You wouldn't find it on the horror shelf, but like I said, it's the stakes are, are, are frightening. Yeah. And still today. It's dated. You can tell it's made in the 70s. Oh, yeah, but, no. Uh, there they remade it and yeah. really didn't improve upon it particularly. Like uh, No, one thing that the remake got wrong was it, it tried to explain more about the gang characters and they weren't as terrifying no yeah I, I think that the way Carpenter got it right is we didn't know enough about them yeah so we didn't question how they were able to pull this off yeah <laughs> whereas the, yeah they get a little more convoluted in the remake yeah but uh it's an okay, the remake is totally fine but I think that you know they didn't improve upon it and therefore you know didn't distinguish themselves as worthwhile yeah. in that respect. One thing that made me chuckle about this movie is that uh, the population of the gang members tends to all of a sudden... Hundreds? Thousands? Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. And but the... all of them are willing to die. They will run into gunfire. Yeah. The, the, that to me almost didn't make sense. But uh, I mean it's a B, B picture exploitation movie. So. Well, that's what I keep saying. Like uh, it doesn't make sense when you think about it now, but when you're yeah. watching the movie, you're just like, oh shit, oh shit, shoot him, shoot him, oh shit. It's all this fucking crazy arcade game, right? Yep. Uh, this is as close as you'll get to what was considered like hardcore, you know, Asian influence action movies in the 90s. Yeah. So much of the time in, in American cinema, you see someone pull a trigger and the guy grabs his chest and slowly slumps over to his knees and dies a quiet, relatively painless death. Not so. Yeah. No, there's there's lots of squibs. There's lots of loud bangs. We see what what happens when people get hit, and yeah. uh, you know, we see the the real visceral danger of you know yeah. bullets flying everywhere. Yeah, um, it works very well. I think it is rock solid, and yeah. it's as far as I'm going to say, his first professional feature. No, so, no, I mean. Um, Despite certain flaws where, once again, you know, we have a very young John Carpenter and he's still, I think, having difficulty, you know, communicating certain things uh, to the actors. The, some of the performances are very stilted. And I think under a more experienced director, you could have gotten more and solid some of the dialogue yeah. lacks subtlety. Yeah. And that's something that he is going to struggle with throughout yeah. his career. Yeah. But... A very talented filmmaker made this movie. You can tell uh, the you know the the fruit is, is starting to ripen. I know uh, in the canon of Carpenter movies, this one doesn't get quite as much mention as like the Escape from New Yorks or you know the yeah. thing and stuff like that. But uh, I think right out of the gate, he came out swinging. And yeah. uh, Bravo! I agree. New York, nineteen ninety seven. The entire city is a walled maximum security prison. The bridges are mined. 
rivers are patrolled. And the United States police force has everything under control, they think. from New York, the high adventure of the future. So we're going to jump ahead to 1981. Mm -hmm. Halloween has happened. Mm -hmm. The he, fog has happened. Yeah. Um, he did, you know, some TV in the in-between times, but um, by this point, John Carpenter's name can sell a movie. You mm -hmm. know, what's John Carpenter got in his end next, we're going to line up and see. Yeah. Um, the fog was considered a little bit disappointing in its box office returns. But it wasn't a, the huge hit that Halloween was. No, but, but everybody agreed that if it not an A+, plus, it was, you know, a B-, minus, right? Um, so here comes a fairly different animal, and this is sort of the weird halfway point, I think, between something like Halloween and Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah. Um, it's not as scary and sort of harsh as Halloween or Assault on Precinct uh, 13, but uh, it's a sort of post-apocalyptic science fiction number that rides the line between funny action macho-ness. Yes. I don't know what you call it. It's, it's not necessarily a straight-out action movie, and it's not necessarily no, a straight-out it, it, comedy. It's, a gross, it's, it's, it's a sort of a cross between a social science fiction film and and an action film. I mean, it is an action film yeah. at, at the heart of it. New York is now a prison. <laughs> <laughs> it's walled in. There is a military presence on all the walls. You're going to keep that, people, right? <laughs> protecting people from getting in or out of the island. Yes. But unfortunately, the president, played by uh, Donald Pleasance, yeah. who has a good working relationship with Carpenter at this point, yes. uh, crashes down in New York. Yeah. And they need him back. Yeah, he's also got a, a very important suitcase. Summit, yes, <laughs> the MacGuffin of the of the this particular movie. Yeah, um, whether or not he gets the president, he wants that briefcase. Yeah, um, so through convoluted uh, plot machinations, they decide they have to send the biggest badass in the world. You mean Clint Eastwood? No, I do not. <laughs> Who do you mean? I sir? mean. The mullet himself. <laughs> Snake. Snake. Skin. Uh, Kurt, Kurt Russell, Russell. Uh, is going to work again and again with John Carpenter. Yeah, he's and, his uh, go-to boy. He's uh, long said that he's not a person who typically believes in sequels, but he could see himself doing sequels to two movies that he ever made. One of them is Escape from New York. Yeah. And one of them we're going to talk about later. <laughs> Big trouble in Little China. Yeah. So obviously the two had a gas making this movie. Yeah. I'm glad. And this is definitely the high tentpole as far as the cult audience goes, is the cult around Carpenter. Yeah. This movie's pretty huge. Yeah. They did make a sequel to it in the early 90s. That'll be a discussion for another day. But yeah. as far as this one goes, Escape from New York, you know, early 80s. How's it aging? Is it still a fun popcorn movie? It, you know, I've seen this film, I think, f at least four or five times now. And one of the things that sort of struck me as I watched it, and I watched it on Christmas Day, believe it or not. Nice. This is a really dark movie. You, you talked about it, it being a sort of action comedy. There's some pretty dark, serious, sinister things going on here. And the movie is bathed in darkness in a lot of ways. You've got people getting raped, people being dragged under the floors. The, you know, the gang that essentially runs New York, once again, are almost like zombies, very much assaulted. That's where I get the Precinct yeah. 13 sort of uh, 
connection. Yeah. When they start crawling this out of the sewers up. just to fuck with whoever's there. Yeah, you know? this movie's kind of a nasty bit of business. And there's cannibals, if I'm not mistaken, right? And, yeah, well, I mean, they're, they're, uh, there's a struggle for resources yeah. on the island, just generally speaking. Yeah. I would agree with you if not for Snake Plissken. Yeah. Because he's always about saying things like, give me a smoke. And uh, <laughs> he is sort of this type of anti-hero that I have a problem with, to okay. be honest. Alrighty. You see it in the Riddick movies. Mm-hmm. You see it in the Blade movies. Mm-hmm. You see it in in this movie. Yeah. The central figure of the movie seems to know he's in a movie. He knows that everything's going to be okay. He knows that this is all artifice. Yeah. And he's not afraid. And because Snake Plissken is never afraid, I am never afraid. Because Riddick is not scared of the evil monsters that are swarming around him, I can't be afraid of them. And because, you know, when he does a grisly kill, he doesn't, you know, turn his head and vomit or go, oh my god, that just happened. He has to give, like, a punchy, really obvious one-liner. Straight out of fucking airplane type of obvious, right? No, I think that takes away from the seriousness of the proceedings. And I'm going to give Carpenter the benefit of the doubt that it was not accidental. (laughs) Yes. I mean, in a lot of ways, there's the whole the good, the bad, and the ugly going on here. It's no surprise that Lee Van Cleef is in this movie. In a lot of ways, you know, Snake is the man with no name. It's not even subtle. Right. Um, I, w- I would probably even say that Brain, played by the great Harry Dean Stanton, you know, is the Eli Wallach character from that movie, and you know, the the pot of gold is the president and what he has, and and the Duke is probably the evil share from that film. So yeah, I mean, there there is a sort of not quite serious to, elements to it, but at the same time, this. I guess I was just sort of surprised by the, the nasty bit of business that this movie was. It's not. It was not as fun as I remembered. Yeah. I don't know. I think that uh, I, I, I smile and smirk throughout the movie. Yeah. And maybe I shouldn't. Maybe that's a miss. But I do. Yeah. I think that... And especially when you look at the sequel. Uh, well, the sequel's... Uh, yeah. It's flat out. They go completely to the other side. It's sort of like full-on comedy. It's yeah. almost the Evil Dead 2 to this movie's Evil Dead. Yeah. <laughs> right? But... Snake is always the unreal thing in the otherwise they're striving to make fairly real sci-fi environment. Yeah. And for me, that kind of works against the movie. Yeah. Um, is it fun to see Snake deal with all this and see his, like, you know, cunty one-liners that he likes to throw in everybody's face? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But there's no reality to it. This is one of Carpenter's kind of dumb, fun action movies yeah but it's disguised as this nihilistic post-apocalyptic sort of nightmare right and uh i I don't know it's strange and it's original and i'll give it points for that yeah but for me the tone is off but i can see its influence Um, i I think special props has to go out to the set designer joe alves uh do you know who joe what uh, who joe joe alves is and the set designer for (laughs) well no but (laughs) what was he famous for Go. He actually made the shark in the oh. Bruce in Jaws. That's his well, one of his many claims to fame. Right. The set design to this movie is top notch. Hollywood keeps on threatening to remake this movie, and to those listening, if you are listening to this, <laughs> one thing you're gonna have to get right if you redo this movie is the background and the setting is un. Believable. Aesthetically, this movie is kind of a joy to watch. Mm-hmm. 
the set, uh, you know, of, you know, the Statue of Liberty, the buildings, the famous bridge. Apparently, they, they were looking for a place, um, and they didn't want to use a studio. So they used old St. Louis. There was a section of the city that had been burnt down recently, and they shot in along there. That was probably one of the best ideas they could have done for this movie. It's uh, props to Joe Alves and his crew for doing this. It's it's pretty cool, and it's very ambitious in its scope. To the positive spectrum that I will also say, for a movie made in 1981, yeah. it doesn't feel very 1981. The only thing that really screams 81 is the mullet, really. Yeah. Um, this is another one of the loud, proud John Carpenter scores that we're seeing here. Yeah. Uh, he scores a lot of his own movies, not all of them, but a lot of them. Yeah, it's it's one of the, one of his uh, characteristics. And it's synthy in a way that a lot of the 80s movies are synthy, but it's more yeah. recognizable as Carpenter world than it is of 80s. Yeah. Um, this is a, a a really helpful thing when you see period films or or science fiction films. They can tend to age better than others uh, because they're not stymied by hair gel or <laughs> or glitter. You know, uh, so that I like. I like that all these years later, um, I could watch it. You know, when my boys are old enough to watch it, and they won't be like, "This is dumb." Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing that really works for the movie are is the supporting cast. We have a pretty impressive cast for definitely for a movie of this kind of ilk. We've got Adrian Barbeau, Ernest Borgnine, Harry uh, Dean Stanton, uh, Isaac Shaft, Hayes, Isaac the, Hayes, the man I himself. I always just call him Shaft because <laughs> I'm white. Yeah. <laughs> also, the great Frank Doubleday returns again as uh, one of the lead gang members. Right. Um, yeah. No. Once again, Hollywood, if you're going to redo this movie, you have to have it well cast. Yeah. They but do. It does still fill that archetype, like I say, especially in these sort of dark future movies, right? Yeah. Anytime you meet somebody who's friendly or nice or a safe haven, yeah. expect them to die, <laughs> right? Anytime somebody makes the noble choice, they're yeah. going to die. They're going to pay for it with their lives. Yeah. I saw this very young. I remember as a little kid being quite upset by uh, Ernest Borgnine being killed. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, when Adrian Barbeau got smacked by the car, it just took me right off my food. I guess it's like, that sucks. More people needed to live through this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Um, watching it now, I did not have that, you know, it, it just sort of seemed like inevitably it was going to get worn down to where yeah. Snake diehards his way out of the situation and everybody else is there to help him survive, right? Yeah. And uh, Snake, like I say, seems to have that knowledge. Yeah. Question. Uh, well, yes. Do you think that uh, Christian Bale is a big fan of these movies? Do you think that might have served his uh, delivery of the Batman performance? Because he's totally a little snake plissken in his Batman. <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> Anyways. Just a theory. Just putting it out there. <laughs> to, be just, to be discussed later. No, anyway. So, uh, any final thoughts on uh, Escape from New York? I have to say, I'm a big fan of the ending of the movie. Yeah, <laughs> Carpenter's distrust of any, like, you know, the establishment is very much alive and well in this movie. Yeah, it works. He says he's going to give the the, the, the tape, tape back, back and, and he, he doesn't, doesn't, and he destroys it casually. The piece of cord is destroyed. Yeah, yeah, as he as he strolls off into the darkness, cue yeah. up the score, cue up the cigarette. Yeah. Macho badassery wins the day. Final uh, thoughts? Final thoughts is overall, I think that it's solid, but nowhere near among my favorite Carpenter films. And uh, I understand the cult audience around it. I'm just not one of the flag waves. The idea, is, I think, is the big selling point of this movie. The, I, I like the idea that New York has become a prison. And this is 1980s New York. Yeah. 
uh, the, before you know Mayor Giuliani came in and made it a police state and cleaned up <laughs> sort of New York. Um, I like that about it. Once again, pacing is a bit of an issue. In movies like this, I like the fuck you, badass, stick it to the man type of character. Yeah. In real life, I find them really irritating, <laughs> you know. I'm detecting you're not you're not liking the snake. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, the snake as a character in a movie, for yeah. sure. But that kind of attitude, that sort of... It's an arrogant perspective. Whether he's right or not, yeah. it's an arrogant perspective that everybody in the world's got their head up their ass except me. <laughs> and that is basically his defining character. In 1977, Voyager 2 was launched into space to the outermost regions of the universe. It carried an invitation in all languages for alien life forms to visit our planet. Someone, somewhere, listened and accepted our invitation. Get ready. Someone is kind. Someone like no one she has ever known before. Can you clone a living organism from the hair of a dead man? We're hypothesizing a technology that's probably 100,000 years ahead of us. He has powers we cannot imagine, and the face and touch of the man she loved. So we're going to jump ahead a few years now. Yep. Um, the thing, I think, his real true high watermark masterpiece yep. bombed because it was competing with the friendliest right. alien in the world. <laughs> and he was gutted. He was totally gutted. The thing was like his passion project. And for it to fail as much as it did. But it failed only to be rewarded with time. Yeah. Um, the thing has made its money back. I have to believe the fact oh, that it's a totally. highly saleable object to this day. Yeah. He he is vindicated on that. Yeah. But like I said, he made Christine to make a buck, and here comes his next studio sort of lock picture. You know. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I feel like the concept of this alone was sort of built for a summer tentpole release. Yeah. It didn't have to be John Carpenter that they chose to direct this movie. Yeah. But I thought it was a good choice on the part of the suits on this part. Yeah. You know, it's not necessarily completely obvious. He's a genre filmmaker, but is not typically comfortable in the PG realm, which this movie very much is. Yeah. I would argue that this is probably the most quote-unquote Disney movie <laughs> that uh, Carpenter will ever or has ever made. Yeah. And so that tonally makes it distinct and different from the rest of the movies. It's definitely the oddest movie of his whole filmography. Um, one thing about it that that screams uncarpenter like, and he's uh, you know come out and said this as well, is that he thinks aliens should always be the enemy. They should not be you know friendly in any way, shape, or possible. But that is not the case with this movie. This alien is basically will needs to be rescued and helps. Uh, does the rescuing as well at at one point. It's a very nice, good alien. And, and we, the humans, we are the true villains. But I think what makes it in the Disney sort of sphere of things is that the alien is not just nice. It's got this almost sort of childlike innocence and wonder and is learning about the world and learning about love and learning and about humanity else. and the human condition. Yeah, and yeah. the fact that plot points, just to push the plot a little bit, yeah. uh, when it lands down on the planet uh, in a sequence that's sort of weirdly reminiscent of the ship from the thing crash landing into Earth at the very beginning of that movie, yeah. or the Spheres thing. He sees an, a picture of a man on a shelf yeah. and cho chooses to take that form yeah. for the duration of his stay. 
presumably keep a low profile. Yeah. Unfortunately, the person that he chose is actually a dead man. And uh, the Karen Allen, who is the grieving widow, wakes up from a bad hangover and grieving yeah. to find her husband's back in the form of a young, naked Jeff Bridges. The dude. The dude rocks, rocks the butt in this movie. It's true. Jeff Bridges will always be the big Lebowski. Or, well, I guess he's not the big Lebowski. He is the Lebowski yeah. of the big Jeffrey Lebowski. Jeffrey Lebowski. Um, and, you know, I, so I think of him as sort of this sort of larger, softer, older dude. And yeah. uh, it's weird seeing a buff, naked dude walking around the house. Jeff Bridges was a hottie, man. I mean, <laughs> yeah. In his, like, you know, 30s. Like, the mid-80s, he was a... A lister, you know, good looking golden boy. Oh, thank goodness he could act. He was nominated for an Academy Award. He was. For this he movie. was. And I question that. I'm not questioning Jeff Bridges' ability as yeah. an actor, but I think that the character is very charming in that yeah. it's learning about everything and, and that he's sort of got this aw shucks smile on his face. It's an so imaginative like him. It's an imaginative performance. I agree with you. I, I, I kinda do a bit of a double take. I, I sort of get the impression that the nomination was more thank you for your body of work and will you know truly thank you at some point. Yeah. It is an odd nomination. I will say this though, how good is Karen Allen in this? She's movie? awesome. She is she is the anchor in this movie. She is who should have gotten an Oscar nomination. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, right. She's so good in this movie and she sells. A ridiculous plot if you sit and you think about it. Yeah. The fact that this character, probably suffering from severe emotional trauma, somehow, and spoilers, falls in love with an alien and proceeds to have sex with it. Like, <laughs> sitting through this movie at this point, at one point I kind of went, this movie is really ridiculous. But I am totally suckered in by it. Yeah, well, this is John Carpenter's only genuine date movie. It's, <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a road romance picture. <laughs> It is, and uh, does that marriage sit completely well for me? Well, I'm 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 typically expecting him to waste little girls buying ice cream, so yeah. no, it's kind of like a little bit not what I expected. Yeah. I remember liking this a lot more when I was a kid. I don't dislike the movie. I think it's fine. Yeah, um, I think that you know uh, this was him again, hoping that he'll be able to make another picture. Yeah, and now having made two successful movies in a row, yeah, the next movie could be whatever he wants. Yeah. So, bravo to that. Yeah. Uh, it was a win for him either way. I, I don't think he sold his soul to the Hollywood system or anything No, like no, that. not at all. Uh, the other thing that I think that the movie has to its benefit is yeah. the always, I think, uh, likable Charles Martin Smith. I'm glad you mentioned our Canadian boy. <laughs> Here's a guy that does not get enough love. I mean, yeah. this is a guy that actually still makes movie in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, he just did a dolphin movie with Morgan Freeman yeah. not too long ago. He's one of those faces, too. Anybody who has seen The Untouchables, remember, yeah. oh, right, Charles Martin Smith. Smith, he breaks my heart in that movie. I yeah. love that guy. Never Cry Wolf. <laughs> Never Cry Wolf. My grandpa took me to see that movie yeah. in the theaters. Yeah. I remember him eating mice on the big screen. So I have a soft spot for Charles Martin Smith. Spoiler. Yeah. But he's got a really good role in this. And he does. He's the character, in a way, that is, uh, you know, peripheral to our, our romance, the most interesting because he's genuinely interested in the intelligent life in outer space. Yeah. And the day he's been waiting for his entire life has come. Yeah. It's sort of like, so this guy has waited and waited and waited to yeah. know that there's life in space. And he gets that confirmation. And that arc, for me, works as much or more than the love story. There's a lot of things that work for, work for this movie for me. Um, 
once again, I just want to get back to Karen Allen for a second because, oh. yeah, <laughs> she, she's 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 a hottie, but at the same time, totally anchors this movie, and and her arc I is far more interesting than the aliens itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I was sort of drawn in by her performance because when we meet her, she's really at, you know at her low, and suffering a lot, and manages to go in this big arc of healing throughout the whole thing. Well, that's another psychological question to be asked. Yeah. Does she fall in love with this alien? Or is this alien her opportunity to say goodbye to her husband and for real let go? By letting, you know, Starman board the ship and fly off into space. Yeah. Is she also letting go of the fact that her husband's died and she can now start living her life again? You know what, Lee? I think that is the case, you know? <laughs> oh, shucks. Yeah. But this is pretty far afield of the ending we just discussed <laughs> in, in, in uh, Escape from New York. Yeah, it, it, it's, a ha- it's, I guess, the happiest ending out of probably the majority of Carpenter films. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, she, you know, is pregnant at this point. Once again, when I, another sort of ridiculous element of this movie, this movie was a hit. It was a hit. It was monster. Oh yeah. yeah, this was big. I remember when I was a kid. This was, this was spawned all a TV series even yeah. with Robert Hayes of Wait for It, the airplane movies. I prefer to think of him as the guy from Cat's Eye. Oh right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's completely fine. It's completely adequate. But I think it's atypical Carpenter. I think it's one of those things that people who are aware of Carpenter, you can say, you know, he did Starman. I'm like, really? Carpenter yeah. did Starman? Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. And, and, and not not like, really? But like, really? He did Starman? Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, and it is interesting. <laughs> and uh, again, uh, the reality with which he handles the situation helps sell the story that, as we say, is both familiar, somewhat saccharine, and, you know, uh, just... Something that is, they have not reinvented the wheel. Yeah. That's told efficiently, you know. Yeah. And for the big budget Hollywood standards of the style, the time, it looks good. Yeah. It's still watchable today. It's yeah. very 80s. Yep. Yeah. Uh, special shout out, uh, shout out goes to George Buck, uh, Buck Flower, another Carpenter regular who's used continuous, continuously throughout his movies. He's the, the cook that drives uh, Starman, mm. basically close to the crater. Also, we have a young M.C. Ganey as the cop that actually shoots Karen Allen as right. well. For those who don't know, um, he was in Lost. Um, he's actually quite, got quite the, his Resume. own film. Yeah. yeah. So it, it was neat to see that this time around. Yeah. I, I yeah. like Starman. It is, it, is, it is a very sweet saccharine film. It's a studio picture. And you could tell that he did it you know, for the suits, for the money to have his career. And that, I'm fine with that. I mean, in a way, it, it was either that or, you know, personally direct one of the Halloween sequels, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm kind of, you know, glad he didn't slum it necessarily with that. I guess he wrote Halloween too, but... Uh, he did. You know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I get it. I don't know, we've kind of been short service on Starman, but I don't know what more to say about it. I mean... If this sounds like a movie that will appeal to you, it yeah. probably will. No, um, I mean, once again, for the whole Carper, Carpenter filmography, I definitely should go see it. It's a good movie. Um, it's it's you know it's a date movie in a lot of ways. It's yeah. it's the only real Carpenter romance movie in his whole oeuvre. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Young performance from Jeff Bridges, like yeah. say um, Karen Allen's probably obviously most famous for playing Marion in in. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Can we say it? The greatest action film of all time. <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. She's had an amazing career. I'm surprised she didn't 
make it as more movies than than she did. But yeah, she, if you look at her, up. It's, I mean, she's been in lots of stuff. Scrooge. But... She's been in Animal House. She was in that uh, ghastly William Friedkin movie Cruising, yeah. and then she just disappeared. I, I'm told j- just from reading through interviews and whatnot that uh, she gave up her career to you know, be a mom and raise kids as well and you know came back for that last Indiana Jones movie. The world needs more Karen Allen. Yeah. And like I said, again, no disrespect to Jeff Bridges and yeah. uh, I'm sure this was like a big movie in his career and, yeah. Yeah, and everything like that. I'm not saying he's a bad actor and that shame on him for getting this nomination. Yeah. But I think it's easy to play the Oshucks alien who's has whatever power is needed for the next scene. Yeah. You mentioned Karen Allen being shot and he's able to fix her because, you know, it's just that kind of movie. <laughs> right? yeah. um, it's it, it's worth looking into if you're a Carpenter completist or if you like, you know, sort of a more Disney-friendly science fiction movie. Yeah. Um, in, in a way, you know, this is sort of his way of saying, okay, audience of the 80s, you didn't want the thing, you wanted E.T., yeah. so... Here, Here we go. This is Jack Burton in the Pork Chop Express, and I'm talking to whoever's listening out there. It's a pretty amazing planet we live on here, and a man would have to be some kind of fool to think we're all alone in this universe. There is a hidden world where ancient evil weaves a modern mystery. What's going on here? Is this some kind of... Magic. The darkest magic. They call it Little China. Finally, we shall bring order out of chaos. It's where big trouble was waiting for Jack Burton. Who? Jack Burton. Me. Jack. Jack. Jack! They told him to go to hell. So I was talking earlier about how I think that he has not just one, but two, but a few bona fide classics in his in his oeuvre Mr. Yeah. Carpenter Halloween absolutely no one is going to argue yeah. the thing people argued maybe when it came out but I don't think you'll find a person that would argue today in fact yeah. I think it's more significant than Halloween my favorite horror movie of all time there the you thing. go there you go but we're not here to talk about the thing but I think that this next movie we're going to talk about which is called Big Trouble in Little China mm. as far as I'm concerned mm. is a capital C classic John Carpenter movie I would love to have been a fly in the wall <laughs> when the producers or whoever was in charge of starting this movie do the pitch meeting no. for it. Well, this is what I say. This is why I love me some Carpenter, right? The thing bombed. It didn't make its money. Back. No, yeah. That, but that, then he made is... Christine for a little bit of money and yeah. it made a ton. Yeah. And then he made Starman, studio picture. It made a shit ton of money. So yeah. you know what, John? Do whatever you want. Well, we he, saw the thing. We know you're talented. You've yeah. made money for us the last two projects. What do you got for us, John? Well, I got this script called Big Trouble. Well, see, I, I'm going to stop you right there because here's the thing. He was brought in late to this project. Oh, really? That's the, interesting. The original director uh, bowed out and they were scrambling because the production was going to go ahead. Mm-hmm. And Kurt Russell kind of said, hey, I've got this guy that uh, can probably do this movie and actually brought in John himself. So this is not his idea. This is actually was actually scripted by the great W.D. Richter, who uh, W.D. Richter was actually a former Navy SEAL, uh, and then decided to take you know take his hand in screenwriting and came up with. How would you describe this movie? It's it is a action comedy supernatural thriller um, with kung fu in it. 
really, I got this weird feeling like, you know how everyone says Tarantino is kind of like a remix artist? Yeah. He takes all of these sort of disparate elements from grungy 70s movies and yeah. sort of puts them in a blender and remixes them into his own thing? Yeah. yeah. That's sort of the same idea, but we're, we're, we're looking at a weird combination of real and made up sort of Asian... I don't know, these are uh, the sort of films that were sort of coming out of China in a lot of ways. Supernatural sort of yeah. religious stories yeah. uh, of creatures in the deep and, and wizards and black magic and yeah. white magic. Yeah. And also just Asian gangs and yeah. ga- disputes and territories. And this anti-hero badass mullet-wearing trucker. Redneck trucker. <laughs> Wait for it. Whose name is... Jack Burton. Jack Burton. Burton and the Pork Chop Express. And uh, this is this is Snake Plissken making fun of Snake Plissken. Yeah. This is like the next level self-aware Snake Plissken. So I was sort of complaining that Snake Plissken kind of knew that this was all bullshit and that yeah. he was going to come out of it fine. Yeah. Jack Burton knows it and comments on it. His whole yeah. character is a comment on this type of hero, yeah. which is hilarious because it's just this type of hero that Carpenter loves, right? Yeah. So in this movie, we're going to ape that. Yeah. One of the brilliant masterstrokes that this movie has is that our lead protagonist is a complete and utter idiot. He's a, with the exception, fairly useless. Yeah. Until the climax of the movie. When he does defeat... he's the, he, I'll, I'll give his character credit. He does defeat... Our Lu villain. <laughs> was it Lu, Lu Kang? Uh, it's Lopan. Lopan, thank you. He does com- dis- destroy the big bad at the end of yeah. the movie. He is given that. Yeah. But for the most part, he talks like he's all that. Yeah. And he fails. <laughs> consistently. Yeah. And we love him for it. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> it's too bad that this movie was a huge flop when it came out. Um, because I would be totally down for a lot more of Jack Burton. This world, yeah. <laughs> Legend has it. Uh, I mean, this film, uh, uh, when it was first released, you know, a lot of these movies, they get preview screenings, uh, preview screenings so the studio can kind of know what kind of movie, if, whether they have a hit or a flop on their hands. Um, this film scored the highest rating ever on its preview of it, preview audience. They were Fox was very excited about this movie coming out. They thought they had a major hit on their hands, and then like it was a tentpole picture. Yeah, they were they, they released it in mid July, and it came out, and then there were crickets. Yeah, and it's sort of sad because this movie is basically a hundred minutes of pure joy. This movie makes me smile from ear to ear every single minute. It's bizarre because this was the age of the late 80s blockbuster where yeah. things were getting fucking weird. Yeah. Movies like The Golden Child and yeah. Howard the Duck yeah. were, were, were gracing the screens. Yeah. And, and like just really hella strange. Yeah. Big, big budget movies yeah. that you just think, how did that get greenlit? I'm, I'm kind of glad it did get greenlit, but how did that happen? Yeah. This is in that bunch. But unlike the other ones I mentioned, I think this one's fantastic. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's it's funny when it wants to be, and yeah. it's got good action when it wants good action. Yeah. Is it scary? Well, yeah. I don't know that I'll go all the way to say scary, but yeah. it is unabashedly supernatural. Yeah. A giant monster jumps out of a hole in the wall and eats a guy whole. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. There's a floating uh, eye watcher demon. Yeah. That whatever it sees, Lopan sees. Yeah. You know, we are slowly ushered into this supernatural world. Yeah. We start off with sort of the macho, I am testosterone Jack Burton. Yeah. Uh, wanting to collect a debt from a drinking buddy. Yeah. And he goes to help pick up this guy's fiance from the airport where yeah. she is 
kidnapped by this Asian gang. And uh, then Jack's truck ends up getting stolen. And in order to basically get his money that is owed to him, he is dragged kicking and screaming into this adventure that happens in this underground of... Like a Saturday morning serial movie. Yeah. yeah, And it gets more ridiculous with each scene and more cartoonish with each scene. And yet it works. It totally works. And like as I mentioned, you just you, you kind of grin from ear to ear. It has this energy to it that is just gleeful and joyful and f- full of life. Can I say this? Yeah. High water mark for Kim Cattrall. <laughs> yeah. I know everyone will Once say again, sex the great in the Canadian. city. Blah 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 blah. Yeah. But in a way, this is high praise. And anytime I compare a character or anything yeah. to the Coen brothers, yeah. Gracie Law, this character that she plays, this yeah. journalist who's yeah. got a lot of moxie and won't be told what to do, but yeah. can't help herself but fall in love with Jack Burton for yeah. some fucking reason. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, her dialogue is sort of delivered in the same way like the Jennifer Jason Lee approaches her dialogue yeah. in, in the Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah. As a sort of like, yeah, see, uh, I'm one of the boys. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, uh, it's got this weirdly throwback quality to it. His Kill Friday, almost kind Absolutely. of banter and dialogue. And yeah. she comes walking in from a completely other movie, different movie, right? Yeah. But fits like a snugly into yeah. this movie, right? All of these disparate pieces should not fit together. Yeah. To and yet it movie. does. Like this movie is everything in the kitchen sink, <laughs> all thrown at you. Like it, it wants to please you so badly. And just, yeah, you got, you just got to let the joy just kind of seep over it. Special props to Dennis Dunn, who is truly the lead of this movie. He's the hero. Yeah. He's the hero of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Jack Burton gets all of the praise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, and, and he has to work for it, but he's really, really good in this. Very capable action hero, very charismatic. Um, yeah, no, and also... Uh, Victor Wong, who's also used in, in more than one Carpenter movie. He's also oh, he will work good. with these guys both directly again. His follow-up feature was uh, Prince, Prince of, of Darkness. Darkness, yeah. So you will see both of those gentlemen in. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I'm just completely enthusiastic. Yeah, no. <laughs> this... Uh, I, there's there's only a certain amount of movies that I see annually. Mm-hmm. Both The Thing and Big Trouble, I see. I manage to see every single year. year. And can, you know, probably quote... <laughs> My fair share of this movie. I gotta say, I love the line, son of a bitch must pay. You know, you say that, uh, and and immediately, you know, a true film you will go, well, will totally nod his head and, and get it. Big Trouble in Little China is one of those movies where you go to people's houses, and if, you, like, if you're like me, you'll look at their DVD collection, <laughs> and nine times out of ten, you will at least see Big Trouble in Little China there. Yeah. This film has an audience. It it stays. It, it has a very growing audience. There's a reason why this film is, this you know the ultimate cult classic. And like Jack Burton to me is just such a better hero figure than Snake Plissken. Mm. Like um, I I know we've already talked about how the fact that that they just beat the shit out of this antihero archetype. Yeah. But one of my favorite things is when. Uh, he rescues the one of the brides from Lopan, King Petra. She gives him a big smack on the face as yeah. gratitude. Yeah. And he gets a smear of uh, lipstick on his face. Yeah. And as he's confronting these badasses and he's laying down the law, talking about how he's going to fucking yeah. <laughs> yeah. beat them so bad they'll have to be identified by blood relatives. He's got this fucking lipstick smear on his face and everybody's just looking at him like, what the fuck? Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, no, I agree. The, the, whoever came up with that scene, bravo. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I almost wonder if it was an afterthought. I mean, I'm, I guess they had to let him do something. But yes, 
uh, he he brags a lot about his reflexes, and at a crucial point in the movie, yeah. he catches a blade and throws it back and kills a dude, and yeah. uh, it, it saves the day. <laughs> yeah, one thing. Yeah, one thing. Um, no, I, I, I love the sequence with the wheelchair where you're trying he's to falling escape. Backwards down there. <laughs> yeah, no. One of the most bizarre deaths in screen history. Yeah, I guess we do have to kind of talk about that. <laughs> you have to sit and kind of wonder <laughs> what came to that idea. All right, so what I want from you yeah. is you're going to sort of blow up real big and turn into this almost giant balloon and explode what? Yeah. What is it? What would you even call it? <laughs> he, he, he exploded. He expanded yeah. until he exploded. He sees the death of his master and gets yeah. so angry, he turns into a steroid-using cabbage patch doll. <laughs> and explodes green lettuce everywhere. <laughs> um, these three personal bodyguards of yeah. Lopan. I remember when I was a kid, I thought they were straight out of the Mortal Kombat. So did I. So did I. I kind of thought, oh, okay, so this is where Mortal Kombat came from. Yeah, but apparently not. But uh, yeah. anyway... They're sort of the three lead henchmen, and they're yeah. like these unbeatable supernatural super ninjas, right? Yeah. And uh, once he doesn't deal with failure well, yeah. <laughs> yes. Once he sees that his his master has been felled, he's going to kill himself. But instead of you know the harikari <laughs> or anything like that, <laughs> yes, he expands like this great big jelly belly and then <laughs> explodes. <laughs> it's this hugely cartoon mo- moment out of this other. Every moment. single time those three show up in the movie, I'm sort of waiting for her. Fart yes. <laughs> to start to play, yeah, yeah. I can't overstate how goofy this is, yeah, and how strange and how all over the place. Yeah, but the comedy works when they want it to, and the yeah. action works. when The they action want it is to. awesome. There's a lot of balls in the air, and, and it works. Uh, I don't know how it works. For all the stupidity, there's some smart satire going on here. Yeah, like uh, spoilers for the rank and review. Yeah, but number one on the list with a motherfucking bullet. Is big trouble, little China for me. No. But uh, that's that's where I land. That's where yeah. I, I'm. I'm biased. Um, this is a movie of my youth. When yeah. I first saw it, I think I was twelve or thirteen. Yeah. So that may help it for yeah. me. Uh, maybe nowadays for the kids, you know, of that age group, they have a different big trouble in little China. But yeah, damn, I love me this movie. No. I love me this movie for maybe more than it's worth. But I, I love me this movie. <laughs> yeah, John Carpenter does give good cinematic head, and this is definitely one of those sort of explodes and, and just all over your face good. Sorry, that's a pretty rough analogy. <laughs> got a little graphic there. <laughs> but yeah, no, this movie is just pure joy through and through. Um, it, it, it's kind of funny, like I said, like he was sort of brought in late to this project, yeah. and it's still very much a John Carpenter film. It has his fingerprints and style all over it. Yeah. Um, I'm still amazed that like this movie is all over the map, and yet it still works. Yeah. It still works, and it's it's like lightning in a bottle. Yeah. There's no reason this movie should be as good as it is. It is a genuine cultural artifact. It's you know it's got its own little niche on the playground. Yeah. And unlike. You know, Escape from New York is yeah. not sullied by a lame sequel. Yeah. I will say this. Anyone out there, if you can make a sequel to Tron, then you can make a sequel to Big Trouble in Little China. I'm I will still, also say I'm to still anybody else out. out there, please don't make a sequel to Big Trouble in Little China. How They could only fail. They could only fail at this point. I think. Do you want to see an old, beleaguered, you know, 
Jack Burton, who needs a cane to step down from his big wheel. <laughs> I don't know. I think that... I uh, would pay money to see Not every movie needs a sequel. Fair enough. But that's me. What do these things want, and why are they here? You still don't get it, do you, boy? They have recruited the rich and the powerful. They're running the whole show. Wake up! They're all about you, all around you. Blinded us to the truth! They are safe as long as they are not discovered. I don't know what they are or where they came from, but we gotta stop them. Stay away from me. Put these on. They have us. Look at them. They're everywhere. Are our owners. We have no other choice. I don't like this one bit. Leave it alone, man. It ain't none of my business. Ain't none of yours. We have been lulled into a trance. Listen to what I'm saying to you. We're in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. Okay, so we're going to wrap up our little study on John Carpenter with the uh, 1988 film They Live. Mm. Um, this is a movie that has grown in my esteem. Mm. I think that when you get to the very late 80s and early 90s, we get into a little bit of a somewhat problematic era in in uh, Carpenter films. I think there's a little bit of a dip here. Mm. There's a noticeable positive blip with uh, In the Mouth of Madness, mm. but uh, there's a, it gets a little rocky. Mm-hmm. Um but I don't know. I used to include this in that group, and I don't know if I do anymore. Mm. I'm still not foaming at the mouth over it, yeah. but I will say this. It's smarter than I gave it credit for. Most people don't realize this, but this is a very, very angry movie. <laughs> this movie has definitely a political agenda going on it, and it, it was probably missed by... Oh, I, I mean, I missed it as a kid. Yeah. Um, on the surface, it is a rather silly invasions of the body snatchers type sci-fi action motion picture. But underneath it, at least allegorically speaking, this movie is a giant attack on Western capitalism, more especially sort of Reaganomics. Um, during many interviews that Carpenter has given about this movie, he's even said that it's been a this is his sort of you know, nightmarish response to what he calls, you know, the scariest time in American history, the Reagan years. And it's all over this movie. It's like somebody has woken up from a dream world almost, right? Yeah. The world you see is the world you see, and it kind of sucks. Yeah. But you're struggling to get by, and you're fighting the same fight as the guy next to you. Yeah. Until you find these magical sunglasses. Yeah. And you put these magical sunglasses on, and you realize that all of the billboards say, you know... Reproduce. Reproduce, or believe. This is your God. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's feeding you all of these horrible messages. Mm-hmm. And that's horrifying in of itself. Mm-hmm. But then you start realizing that a lot of the people that you're standing next to and that you're shoulder to shoulder with are not people. Yeah. <laughs> They're aliens. Yeah. And uh, I think that, that that's sort of the way he sees the man, corporate America, the entity. They have no humanity to them at all. Yeah. We are their slaves. We are their, the people that are working the crops. And yeah. uh, we live pointless lives beneath their feet. Yeah. Essentially. And this drifter, badass, anti-hero character that Carpenter likes to bring us so much. What is the name of Nada. James Nada, but of course, you know, almost like the Neo character. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he's like a a dude, rough and tumble guy and, uh, you know, works construction and just making a hard living with his hands. Um, 
and he gets awoken to this conspiracy yeah. by complete accident and decides he needs to do something about it. <laughs> yeah. And how does one man bring down the, this huge infrastructure, yeah. uh, alien infrastructure of control? Yeah. And the answer that the movie posits is, well, he doesn't. <laughs> I think. Yeah. I think. But we'll get talk to the ending when we get there. Yeah. That said, for the darkness that we both described, yeah. the movie also has that Snake Plissken thing, where the main character seems to believe he's going to get through this thing, right? It's just, uh, I'm here to kick ass and, and chew, chew bubblegum. Bubble gum and it has the immortal line. And I am all out of bubblegum. Yeah. That's, that's funny, sure. Yeah. That's a great badass macho line. But does it belong in this smart science fiction movie, or does it maybe more comfortably belong in... Escape from L.A. or even, even you know, Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. I think that the comedy and the goofiness hurts, which would have been a fairly biting, ahead-of-its-time science fiction film. Yeah. And I think part of the problem might be Roddy Piper. I think he's adequate, but I don't think he's an amazing actor. No, yeah, yeah he's an... Action hero. He's got the same amount of thespian talents as, dare I say, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, it's like, uh, like he's got this vibe of, uh, listen to me or I'll beat you up. He's got yeah. this bully charisma, <laughs> yeah. I guess. Um, but I, I think that the, the other actors around him are good. Meg Foster's solid. Uh, um, what's his name? Keith David. I I, I, I I have a small confession to make. Oh. I, I I have a new man crush, by the way. Yeah. Keith David <laughs> is so good. And this guy's had like a story. Is he your new Cole Hauser? He is definitely my new Cole Hauser. <laughs> He's so yesterday old Cole. <laughs> well, see, Keith David has that voice. Exactly. <laughs> Keith David is actually, he's had quite the career too. He's been in Platoon. Um, do you remember the Puppet Masters? Oh, yes. I saw that recently again. He's also in that. Um, he's got that creepy cameo in Requiem for a Dream. Um, he's really good in this. Um, yeah. He's in The Thing. Yeah. He's Giles, is he not? That's right. Yeah. I believe so. Um, this is it, his second movie, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. He, he, had, he made The Thing and then expected more offers after that and went did nothing. And then John Carpenter decided to give him a, another really juicy, role. juicy, juicy role. He's uh, really good in this movie. I think that we have to discuss it too because no. there's a very famous fight sequence in this it movie. It does. It, ha it has about a six and a half minute fight sequences that they practiced for a couple weeks on it, I, I believe. This is another, I think in a way, this encapsulates what is both strong and weak about this movie simultaneously. Yeah. Because at some point it just becomes ridiculous and funny, that fight. Yeah. And what is the fight? What instigates this violence? Them trying to put on sunglasses. He tells Keith David that he needs to put on these glasses, that he will understand what he's trying to explain to him yeah. if he puts these glasses on. Yeah. And Keith David says, no, fuck yeah. you. Yeah. And he is not willing to do it. He's absolutely, he will, he will allow himself to be pile-drived onto concrete before he is even willing to admit the possibility yeah. of what this guy's saying being true. Yeah. There is some strong satire there. Yeah. But nobody fucking thinks about that because they're too busy going, why the fuck is this fight going on like this? Why is it going on for so long? Yeah. We don't get the why very clearly. We just get this 
fight. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Roddy Piper being an ex-wrestler is very yeah. proficient at that stuff. And they sort of treated it as a fight. Yeah. But the real struggle is, is that some people like the blinders. Yeah. That's not established in Keith David's character. Yeah. It's just obstinance. He yeah. just doesn't want to. Yeah. In a way, it would. how interesting would it be if he knew or suspected this was the case? But was willing to play ball or, or, or just, you know, as long as I'm fed and me and mine are taken care of, whatever is the big scheme out there is the big scheme out there. I just yeah. got to look after me. Yeah. Then it would have been strong. Then I would have said, yes, this makes sense. Yeah. As it stands, it's just this ridiculous fight scene that goes on way too long and becomes uncomfortable and funny. It's interesting to note that the reason why, at least in Carpenter's view, the reason why he wanted to have this extended fight sequences is he wanted to show apparently the love that these two characters had for each other the strong friendship it's sort of a weird explanation for this what is a very long and from a story point i have to believe like the original short story that it's based on yeah i haven't read it so no I'm the, re- the wrestling in it is it is not an original short story it makes sense thematically that it's somebody who doesn't want to see the truth it's not that they don't know it they just don't want to see it as long as they're it's not laid bare in front of them they can pretend that everything is hunky-dory but that's not how it's played and that's fairly consistent for the movie yeah sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's smart but it's never both at the same time yeah 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 I i can see what you're going with i guess yeah (laughs) Um, well let's move towards the third acting this is full of people that I like I say Meg Foster has like the most hypnotizing eyes I've ever seen in my life they're very welcoming one of the only positive things that I will say about Lord of Salem is that he cast Meg Foster I haven't seen her in so long and she's obviously a lot older now but those eyes those eyes (laughs) Um, they're pretty sharp yeah um she definitely represents, I think, a, a clearer vision of what we were talking about there in that um, either she'd always known or she decided to play ball, but she's the turn. Oh, she's always known. Yeah. Hands for spoiler, her big betrayal at yeah. the end. Yeah. She leads the evil to the base of the rebels where a lot yeah. of innocents or quote-unquote good guys are gunned down. Yeah. And she quite coldly executes one yeah. of the main characters in the final minutes of the movie. Yeah. And this is another thing that's disparate about the movie. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and drop some major spoilers for right a day ahead. I live. This was made in 1988, so everybody just yeah. get over it. Yeah. I mean, watch it if you want to. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't watch it. I think it's an interesting movie. It's yeah. just not one of my favorites. Um, but it's interesting because Roddy Piper has that attitude that I'm bulletproof. I will, I will see this through to the end. Yeah. And he is successful in, at least briefly, exposing the alien subterfuge but it costs him his the life. joe every man is sacrificed for i i, I do want to say the greater good in yeah. a lot of ways but he succeeds in destroying the satellite feed so everybody yeah. who is an alien is exposed as an alien yeah but it's so strange because it should be this big shocking moment that the, our anti-hero is gunned down and he's he's laying there dead like this should be an impactful moment yeah and it's followed up by titties this woman is riding on top of her boyfriend and looks down and realizes that she's sleeping with an alien. Yeah. And the alien looks up at her and says, What's the matter, baby? Slam! Credits! All of the impact of the fact that our hero sacrificed our life to save the day is kind of undone yeah. by a, a joke moment to yeah. slam in on the credits. 
Yeah. And uh, again, I think it's fairly symbolic of, of the flaw of the whole movie. It's just like, it was trying to be two things at once um, and not so very successfully. It was doing one of those things at a time in any given scene, I felt. Is it a complete write-off? No. no. Is it a bad movie? No. Yeah. It's well made. Uh, I like the acting in it. And um, as a popcorn Saturday afternoon movie, you can do a lot worse than they live. Yeah. But it's interesting because it's got all this stuff that Carpenter plays with regularly. And it is a fairly quintessential Carpenter movie. And yeah. I think it's it's kind of a flawed one. Well, what's interesting to, to note about this movie, because I do agree with you with the ending. The ending seems sort of a little bit off and almost... I don't want to say like they ran out of money, but it just really... There's something against... abrupt about it. Yeah. And that and that doesn't work. Um, what's interesting to note about this movie is that this movie opened up number one and stayed number one for three weeks. And they pulled it out of the theaters. And then it just disappeared from the top ten. No other movie's ever done that. It's sort of interesting. And this movie has, you know, as people don't know this, but it has made a print, an imprint on at least pop culture. To this day, still people, and people unaware of this, you know, you'll see them wearing these t-shirts or, or bunny hugs with obey. Written and, across it. Yeah. You know, other stuff like that. Like it's, it's managed to stay very much part of our consciousness in some well, sort of and way. I think, I think there's something to this movie that people... The satire was, like yeah. I said, ahead of its time as far yeah. as how far down this road we're getting in the yeah. media-controlled environment. Yeah. We're told what the news is. Yeah. You know, and we are you know, told what we should be worried about this week. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're told, you know, it's a really bad thing that this is happening, so let's all be worried about that. You yeah. know, there might be a malaria outbreak. Let's be scared of that this week. There's always something to be distracting us from the real social injustices that are going on. And the fact that they were calling shenanigans on that in a, in a sort of major studio picture yeah. makes this movie interesting. Yeah. I just wish they were a little better at it. <laughs> it's, uh, it was sort of, uh, sort of interesting that, you know, I rewatched this movie over the Christmas holidays and about a couple of days later, Oxfam released that article about the 3% of, of the world, you know, wealth, world population controls, you know, more wealth than the rest of the people combined. Yeah. Um, I, I found that very interesting that that came out while I was rewatching this movie. I think Carpenter is right in, in, in he's telling that the rich are the small elite group that are deliberately and will lie, cheat, steal, lie, cheat, steal, and kill to maintain that much money and that much power. It's not even just to have be wealthy. It's to yeah. be more wealthy than... To have money that they could never ever spend. Yeah. As long as they're having more and other people are having less, they yeah. sleep more comfortably. It seems like uh, it's strange. It's strange, and it's the same kind of corporate greed that you can see will justify. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll be putting a, a few hundred thousand people out of work, but we'll make a few hundred more million dollars this year. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That kind of awful nihilistic cynicism is what he speaks out against, and yeah. I agree with him one hundred percent. And I agree that media manipulates us. You know, yeah. and I think that it deserves a smart, brutal, incisive, satirical look. And I think that the bubblegum lines, as funny and charming as they are, kind of take away from the message. Yeah.
So that was six John Carpenter movies ranked. Mm. Well, not yet ranked, reviewed. We were about to rank. I got ahead of myself there. Yeah. Um, and it's, other than they're directed by John Carpenter, and they have, a lot of them are scored by Carpenter. I think yeah. it's a fairly different bunch of Carpenter movies. Yeah. Um, and again, the most anomalous thing is that there's nothing genuinely scary here. We yeah. don't have a Prince of Darkness or a thing, you know, in here. The, there, um, there's no In the Mouth of Badness. These are mainly some of his more popcorn fair movies. And yeah. uh, so I like that. It's a little bit different for, for rank and review, so yeah. I like them. So I'm curious to see how this ranks. I've got good feelings about this episode. Uh, what was your number six and why? Well, number six is obviously Dark Star. Um, it, you know, it's a student film, so you kind of, you know, kind of keep that in mind. Um, but it's, its flaws are glaring and, and well out there. And it suffers, it suffers from some pacing problems. So number six is Dark Star. This is where it gets tricky because some of these movies have such great elements to them but the other thing that, that sort of take you out of the movie something's got to be in fifth place so yeah and i'm surprised to put this here because my love for this movie has grown over time and that is assault and precinct 13 oh wow um it's the fact that and you can tell that carpenter hasn't quite learned to communicate with his actors quite yet quite well you know it's very i'm going to put the camera here and i know how to talk about you know film language with you know the building of suspense and whatnot, but the actor who plays Napoleon is really bad in this movie, and it kind of takes me out of it. It's got too many clunky lines, like "got a smoke." That's supposed to be this big punchline, like this. Yeah. So, and like I said, I love, I really, really enjoy Assault on Precinct Thirteen. He's clearly got a smaller budget here that he's working with, and yeah. and I get that. Um, there's just like I said, and it's hard because like. If you were to ask me on a different day, it might move up in the rank. And I already can tell that this is where we already are going to differ. <laughs> <laughs> but number five, and, and it, it pains me to say this, that it is Assault on Precinct 13. All right. Number four is Escape from New York, which is strange considering that a lot of people sort of, you know, consider this one of his stronger, you know, in, in his whole High collection. Watermark, yeah. Um, great idea with the whole that New York is a giant prison. Um, the set design is outstanding with this movie um suffers a little bit once again from the whole pacing thing great mood great atmosphere i mean that's one thing about a john carpenter movie you are he's definitely a master of creating mood and that kind of foreboding atmosphere where where people are drawn by fate almost to this forbidding doom right um so number four is escape from new york the reason why Starman is here is that the performances are so good, mostly by Karen Allen. So number three is Starman. Um, it's definitely the most out of place from the rest of the Carpenter movies just because it, it's, 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 it's a happy ending, and that yeah. doesn't usually happen with a Carpenter film. Um, it takes a completely ridiculous story, and the actors make it totally believable. And I still get teary-eyed. I'm not ashamed to say by the ending. It's the, you know, the whole... It's got an aw shucks quality. It, it does. And, yeah, it's definitely 80s. It's definitely stuck in that time. But it still it still pulls at the heartstrings. And I think that that is credit really to the performances. I mean, to the story writing as well. Um, but both, like, Karen Allen totally owns this movie. She's kind of like Dee Wallace in a lot of ways. Not enough, not enough love goes to someone like Dee Wallace, who yeah. was in E.T. and Cujo, and you kind of go, 
how come you weren't as big as... You can sell it, almost any scenario, and I believe yeah. you emotionally. Yeah. No matter how ridiculous, yeah. I believe you. Yeah, and that's the sign of a good actor, too. Yeah. So, number three is Starman. They Live, I think, is a lot smarter than a lot of people get give it credit for. And I love the anger in this movie. Mm. I agree with you that there's some things that take you out of this picture, like that fight sequence and the ending. Um, but I like the sneaky nature of, of this movie. And I do agree that this movie was ahead of its time. Yeah. So that's why it ranks higher. Its footprint on our cultural fabric is, is, is there, and people don't even realize it. You know, like I mentioned earlier about those clothes and whatnot. And this film has found an audience. I mean, it's, it was a hit. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. But, it, but people, an audience keeps on coming back to this movie. There's a reason why there's... Uh, maybe not a Criterion release, but they definitely got that big, you know. Well, I just bought it basically for this podcast, and yeah. it was not hard to put my hands to a copy of this almost what thirty-five-year-old movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's it's around. It's in yeah. the public consciousness for sure. Yeah. And of course, number one, without a doubt, is Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. This I movie think we kind of showed our hand a little bit in her. Yeah. But, uh, this movie goes very hard out of its way to make Lee happy, <laughs> and I, I love it for it. There's, you know, there's not one thing I would change about this movie. It's I'm surprised how good this movie is, and it still works. Big Trouble in Little China has truly stunning rewatchability. Yeah, <laughs> I've watched the shit out of that yeah, movie, I, I, and I, I could watch it right now. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, no, so it's... yeah, I'm not going to argue with that. Yeah. Well, I, I came into this thinking that this might be the one, Lee, where you and I went six for six, but uh, that's not going to be the case. It was hard. Like I said, these movies could, I'd say, from like five to one, five to two, even. Is weird where they, it's it. They're so close. Well, this just this is the list that, and I felt it out. This is where it intuitively made sense to yeah. me. Number six, we one hundred percent agree is Dark Star. Yeah. For all of its rough charm, it is yeah. a student film disguised yeah. as a feature. Yeah. And of all the movies on the list, if I could say there's one that you could probably go without watching and not really be missing out on the Carpenter experience. Yeah. That's the one. I'm not saying don't watch it, but yeah. I'm saying it is clearly the least of this yeah. and probably the least of yeah. his work. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe I need to watch Village of the Damned again, but we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> um, in fifth position, I put Escape from New York. Now, I'm a fan of Escape from New York. It sounded yeah. like I was being super hard on it. Uh, yeah. In a way, I think it walks that line in, in a, a better way than, than They Live did. Yeah. But I think that They Live had more things going for it in that... B, it was smarter, and, yeah. uh, you know, it was more ahead of its time. So I gave it a little bit more of an edge for that. Yeah. Uh, in fourth position, I put Starman. It's completely well well realized. He did service to the script. Solid acting. Yeah. It's just, uh, of this selection of movies, it's probably the most removed from my typical fare, what Larry typically likes to watch. Yeah. This is fine. It is totally fine. Yeah. Uh, watch it. Yeah. But there it is. Uh, they Live, I made it to, to third place. And when I originally sat down to watch this these six movies, I imagined They Live being much lower on the list. Yeah. And I still, as I said in my review, have my scruples with it. Yeah. But it's one of these movies, because it's so close to being something really special, yeah. it's kind of frustrating almost for me. Like, it's just walking that line so... Yeah. Ugh. yeah. 
But here's where we, we most strongly disagreed about the bunch. Because all the way at second place, I put Assault on Precinct 13. Really? Um, I don't know. I was impressed by it. I think I was the most emotionally involved with it in a lot of ways. I laughed and enjoyed myself watching... Uh, you know, big trouble in little China, but I, yeah. I don't have to take my feet off the floor and I don't feel my body clenching up. Yeah. And uh, there is something visceral about the experience of Assault on Precinct 13. It is preposterous, yeah. and I, I can't even really make a compelling argument against that, yeah. but uh, the stakes make it very compelling for me. Yeah. And yeah, that Napoleon dude, the anti-hero guy, is laying it on pretty thick. Yeah. But this is an archetype that he will continue to play with right up to Ghosts from, of Mars. You yeah, know? I, I mean, and, that's uh, the thing. I, assault, Ghosts of Mars is essentially Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah. Again, a worse, a much, much worse version yeah. of it. Yeah. But uh, we see all of the seeds that make Carpenter really great yeah. in his first feature, and that shit impresses me. Yeah. So it surprises me that, that it ranked that high for me, but there it is. And yes, as discussed in first position... I think the genuine classic, yeah. Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. It's a completely batshit movie, but just yeah. because it's crazy doesn't mean it shouldn't be a classic. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Exclamation. No. <laughs> Texas. Yep. So now it is time to give out some Jerry Awards. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that we're going to give an honorary Best Director Award, Jerry, uh, to John Carpenter. Yeah. The fact yeah. that we dedicated an episode to him, in my mind, makes him a Jerry Award winning director. <laughs> so he deserves some love. I congratulations, mean... John Carpenter. I think we've probably seen the end of his film career. So... The last film he made was The Ward. We'll probably get to it one day on Rankin Review. And, um, Though not a flawless movie, it's. I'm glad that he finished with that and not Ghosts of Mars. I'll yeah. say that. Yeah. Um, Anyways, so congratulations, John Carpenter, for your Jerry Awards. The rest of the Jerry Awards this week will be given out by Lee Beckman. All right. <laughs> well, the first category uh, of of uh, the 2015 Jerry's John Carpenter <laughs> selection is best kill, and the nominees are yeah. drum roll, drum roll. <laughs> Uh, the ice cream truck death of the little girl from Assault on Precinct 13. That would be the one to beat. Yep. The surprise death down in the caves, if you will. Yes. Uh, I see see you no more. Yeah, this is like this total red shirt character. I don't think he even spoke a line of dialogue. From Big Trouble in Little China. He just looks in the wrong cave and is devoured. (laughs) And uh, and the uh, Adrian Barbeau death scene from Escape from New York. Yeah, she's a little bit disappointed to how things have played out for her boyfriend. Yeah. So she decides to stay behind and try and buy them some time yeah. and ends up getting squashed pretty yeah. ugly. I, 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 I gotta say, I, I think you'll agree with me on this, but the uh, the sudden death scene of the girl from Assault and Beast in the 13th. Pretty shocking and impactful. And yeah. sort of establishes that uh, there's no rules to this particular picture. Yeah. So. It, it was just, it's the clear winner. Yeah. It's true out there. Um, the next award is the what the fuck moment from 
John Carpenter's Ubra. Anyways, uh, the scene our, our, we have is the exploding dude from Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> yes, we discussed him sort of blowing up like a balloon and then popping lettuce and spinach everywhere. It looked yeah. green to me. <laughs> you definitely got to shake your head and go, what? What just happened, you guys? Um, the rape scene from Escape from New York. Snake Plissken comes across some gang members who are having their way uh, with this woman who's just sort of standing there almost out of it against the wall. and. Yeah. Snake kind of makes a decision, you know, that uh, I don't have time for this, and simply walks away, leaving this woman basically to her fate. Bizarre scene. Yeah. yeah it, it works. It's haunting, and it's brutal. Uh, and, of course, the almost six-and-a-half-minute uh, fight wrestling match that c- comes with uh, comes in They Live that feels very much out of place from an already very bizarre and all-over-the-map kind of movie. Yeah. Uh, between that and the ending, you're saying, right? Yeah, it, it, that's true. Also, the sort of weird sex scene at the end that sort of bookends this movie. Yeah, like, cumulatively, I think the most what-the-fuck moment should probably go to one of the They Lives. Yeah. But uh, that that death in, in a movie that is already crazy and off the hook, yeah. that death in, in Big Trouble Little China is really out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I will err to your judgment. Once again, it's hard... I'm just going to say that, especially because they practiced so long on it, but that fight scene in They Live, and it's it's legendary. You start talking about bizarre and sort of, you know, classic fight scenes in movies, and somehow that always shows up. Is well, that, that, that long fight sequence in They Live. There's I don't know if it built up... It, Hate it. <laughs> I don't know if it built up any homoerotic attention, uh, uh, tension between those two characters, but... Yeah. Uh, Built up something in me. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, (laughs) and last but not least, we'll we'll get to Best Actor. Um, And the nominees are Karen Allen for Starman, Kurt Ruskell as the legendary Jack Burton. Mm -hmm. Uh, A little shout out to our Canadian boy, Charles Martin Smith. Keep making those movies, my brother. And just because I love him, man, he's my new man crush. I'm going to say Keith David for They Live. Well, I think the honest answer is Karen Allen, but I'd be tempted to give a cumulative to Kurt Russell. He's a regular collaborator with John Carpenter, and I do think it does represent some of his best work. Yeah. Um, Maybe not Snake Plissken, but I definitely think his work in The Thing and in Big Trouble with Little China. I mean, it's not easy to play... uh, you know, somebody who's so confidently making a fool of themselves all the time. I think that it was a genuinely good comedic It walks a brilliant line. But it Karen br- Allen brought real raw emotion to a, a script that almost didn't deserve it yeah. in some ways. So that's the honest winner. But, yeah. uh, I mean, if you gave it to Russell, I wouldn't complain either. It's hard because they're really two different performances. And they, it, it kind of shows how mistreated comedy really is. Karen Allen is so good in Starman. I don't know. Like I said, I was I was blown away by her performance in this movie. So I'm going to be honest and give it to her. But it, it's hard voting down what I think is one of the great sci-fi action characters that is Jack Burton. Yeah. Um, it's it's it, it's awesome. It's we awesome. just can't say enough good things about Jack Burton or yeah. Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. If for some reason this podcast is reaching your ears. And you have not seen Big Trouble in Little China. Stop what you're it. stop what you're doing right now. Just stop it. Put it down. Go to you know whether you've got Netflix. <laughs> Seek it out. If you've got a friend, you know his habit. Stop what you're doing. 
put it in your DVD player and enjoy the next two hours because you're in for a treat. You may not love it as much as Lee and I do. I don't know, you know who you are, who we're talking to. But I will say this. I want to build an audience for this podcast. Yeah. So if somebody out there watches this movie and they haven't seen it before and upon watching it find nothing in it of charm or of value entertainment-wise... You're dead. Stop the fuck listening to my <laughs> You're dead to me. <laughs> you know what? There's something wrong with, you, wrong with you if you don't like this movie. I'm just going to come out and just say it. Like, you might not be enthusiastic about it, but if you don't seem like some sort of simple, basic charm to it, then I, I, don't, know. I don't know. I think if you don't like this movie, you're the kind of person who likes to draw little kittens. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. Thank you for once again returning. Hey, man. My most ha- frequent... Thank you yes. for having me. It's, it's an honor to be here. Yeah. Um, yeah. John Carpenter. Here's to him. He's the man. ranked, reviewed, and put behind us. I hope you enjoyed that special episode of Rank and Review, and I hope you'll enjoy further episodes of Rank and Review. I drop every two weeks on Wednesday. And please do spread the word about Rank and Review. Send any feedback you'd like to rankandreview at gmail.com. Seek out the website, rankandreview.ca, and uh, you can leave comments directly there. And uh, tell a fellow film nerd that you found a cool podcast. Well, I guess you'll be hearing me next time. Bye-bye.